on the collaborative fund blog collaborative fund blog that's a sally sell sheesh now i can't do it collaborative fund. anyway it's not even yeah. an alliteration i just can't say it that's but. really poor podcasting content right there you just fumbling through words <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. <clears throat> yes. Hello. Sorry, sir. This is McDonald's. <laughs> what? <laughs> that was not your way to say hello. It was like that cough thing. I, I do what I want when I want. Yeah, that's a great way. To it was uh, it was like my boy. Let me clear my throat. You know what I mean? Okay, I hear so. you. We have talked crypto and we've talked like crypto millionaires and stuff. It, we need to tie up a loose end from last week, Dougals. We talked a lot about AMC and the apes and the brilliant slash interesting approach that their management team has taken, taking a stock that basically should be bankrupt and getting very creative. With the way they issue shares and the mining companies they buy. Did your mom or yeah, I don't know, friends ever tell you actions speak louder than words growing up, Diggles? Don't remember. Sounds about right for you. MC's CEO owned about 1.3 million shares in early 2021. That was worth 2.5 million bucks at that time. He ended up selling them for more than $30 million. The CFO did something similar. He had about 400K worth of stock. He sold every last one of those and made $8.5 million. So when they write a press release that says our stock is worthless and you should not buy it, they truly mean it. Let me just reinforce the most most authentic executive team. (laughs) I, I, I mean, I'm coming. I love them more and more. They're like, this is worthless. Oh, what? We hit the jackpot. We're going to sell our lottery ticket and we'll still manage the company, but uh, we're not going to be fit financially invested. And what what else is wonderful to me is that there's now this cycle that exists that AMC as like the AMC board sits in. So, of course, because we are, I don't know, nerds, whatever. I don't want what else to call it. Um, I started I went in and was reading like uh, financial disclosures looked at the last 10k i just started I was interested to see what else is behind all these sales and one of the things that i saw was that the amc board is basically like they didn't say it in these words but they said our stock is what it is and our company is what it is like it's allowed to be alive because of the ceo so interesting yeah we need to pay this ceo a whole lot of money because otherwise we have no money and so, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> so what they did at like in in 2021, after all this went down, was the CEO went from 1.3 million shares to about 100,000 shares from that lot. But then they just threw so many more shares yeah. at the CEO and tripled, I think it was tripled. I might get that a little bit wrong, but from my memory, it's like tripled like bonus capability for the CEO because they that's that's all they have. Like the theaters don't do anything, so why invest in those? The CEO seems to just generate through meme mania, through social media, all the the money we can get. This is a 
this is not a like uh, investor rich <laughs> um, situation or scenario that AMC is in. FYI to the apes, like it is not positive. This is not investment advice. This is like just f- personal uh, wisdom I- I'm trying to put out into the world. Is we talked about second level thinking, right? That Howard Marks, yeah, likes yeah. to throw out. This is like one and a half level thinking. No, I think, I think this is like a half level thinking. Like it's not <laughs> even. <laughs> this is half level thinking. Just when you see a doom loop that you were sitting in the middle of, just step back. Just no, step. Back. Hold on, you're thinking about this wrong. You're being too hard on AMC. So. If you're going to dilute your shares that much, if you're going to issue four times the amount of shares in like the course of 18 months, you you got to give that to someone. You might as well give some to your execs. How else do you, I mean, that's you just extra you shares laying around. You just got like, all these extra shares. Honestly, if I was like a homeless man sleeping in front of their headquarters, they would have given me a million shares because they're like, we're, we're printing these things like crazy. Will you take them? I mean, the million shares were effectively worth zero dollars <laughs> at, the, at the beginning. So. Yeah. Anyway, I, it's a it's a nice little uh, to bow to put on that um, for the conversation we had. Thanks for thanks for bringing that up. Okay, before we get real intellectual with it, because that's what I have in my fishbowl today is a lot of intellectualisms. Before we do that, uh, please rate and review the podcast. Helps people to find us. We love it. Click on those stars and skippydoogles at gmail dot com. Love your listener mail. Thank you. Thanks for all those that that send in stuff, whether it's just like sometimes we just get people like loving certain things we do, giving suggestions, sometimes it's articles, whatever you want to send. We, we love it all. So appreciate you. Can I reach into the fishbowl with some intellectualities? Okay. Yeah. I got a series of these today and I apologize ahead of time if you don't like it, but I love it. So it is what it is. I'm going to start out with my boy, Morgan Housel. Oh, yeah. We missed this last week. I'm excited to hear you. Yeah. So. He wrote this piece recently called Big Beliefs on the Collaborative Fund blog. Collaborative Fund blog. That's a Sally Salshish now. I can't do it. Collaborative Fund. Anyway, it's not even an alliteration. I just can't say it. That's really poor podcasting content right there. You just fumbling through words for 30 seconds. All right. So what this uh, Big Beliefs is, it's basically Morgan going through and saying things that he believes in. Um, just like a set of beliefs and this is someone that has is very well read well written and so it's worth looking at some beliefs that he has i love the way this this piece starts i fundamentally believe this point a trick to learning a complicated topic is realizing how many complex details are a cousin of something simple does that mean anything to you there's some potential there but i'd almost have to put it in play with like a real life example to see if i truly believe it okay I'll translate this, say it a little bit differently. What Morgan's saying here is that many times what happens when you're trying to learn something new is all that you see is a bunch of complexity. Like you see all the details, but all those details are derived from like a fundamental concept. And if you understand the fundamental concept deeply, you can then figure out the rest on your own. Like it becomes much easier from the foundation to build on everything else. It brought me back to um, back in college, when I take something like like a calculus or physics, you know, one of those things, right? Many times, they end up throwing all these equations at you, right? You got to memorize all the equations so you could use them in different problems. But most of the time, there's one equation that's like the center of it all. And what I would do is at the start of a test, I would just memorize like the three base equations, write them at the top, and then use them for everything else. Wow. So basically, 
you shouldn't have passed any of your college courses. You're just fumbling through equations that you don't understand. Is that what I'm hearing here? Breaking news. Ah! Uh, anyway, <laughs> let's go back to Morgan. <laughs> Not untrue. Let's go back to Morgan. So, uh, so anyway, so so Morgan puts out a bunch of like fundamental beliefs that that Morgan has. I just want to highlight one of them that I thought was most interesting. Here's the belief: sitting still feels reckless in a fast-moving world, even in situations where it offers the best odds of long-term compounding. I'll repeat it: sitting still feels reckless in a fast-moving world, even in situations where it offers the best odds of long-term compounding. Let me get your view, and then I'm going to hit on hit on something Morgan says that uh that that sits underneath this. Yeah, this is my view. I just went to customink.com and uh, got that printed on a T-shirt. It should be here by Tuesday. So like, that's amazing. <laughs> it's really good. It's really uh, really good. He said uh, similar versions of that previously, and in a way, Buffett said Buffett and Munger both have said very similar things. I'm I'm gonna get even better with it. Because underneath that belief, one thing he says is this. The bias towards action is one of the strongest forces in business investing for three reasons. This is some brilliance about to hit your earwaves. One, it can be the only signal to yourself and others that you're not oblivious to risks. Two, mm -hmm. it can be the only signal to others that you're worth your salary. That's and probably the biggest one. Yeah. Holy cow, I see that happen all the time. Yeah. And three... It can provide the illusion of control in a world where so much is out of your hands. I mean, it's great. I, I, like, Nailed it. It, it, it's so good. Like to, to hit on these again. So the first one, the first one, it can be the only signal to yourself and others that you're not oblivious to risk. It's like people, obviously human nature, like you don't want to look stupid. And if you're, if there's like all this stuff happening in the world and you're not doing anything, People are going to be asking, well, what do you want to do? What's your plan? What do you like? Right. There's always something that you got to be doing. And so if you're if you're not taking some action, then it's like and you're uh, you're hit with whatever the risk is. Then people are going to be like, well, you just sat on your hands the whole time. Right. That's that's one. Yep. Two. And th that's so real, man. I mean, I'll run into folks that know I'm heavy in to investing and especially at times of market turmoil the question is always like what are you doing what are you trading and my response is almost always nothing and they just the look on their face is like but why i i thought you knew this stuff and it's like well i do i do <laughs> i'm actually going to be better off for not trading but that's not how the human brain works they go you got to be doing something you're just yeah. sitting around yeah, one thing that I really love uh, that's come up in, I can't remember when it was, but this came up at some point and it's just like really stuck with me is oftentimes people ignore the cost of success. And I think that this is related. It's it's a little bit different, but it's related. And where someone might be like, we need to get this piece of business, right? And it might be a risky piece of business. Yeah. Yep. I go, but what happens if we do get it? Like, and then this, this gets to some actual like second level thinking. It's like, if... If we get that piece of business, that then means we need to do X, Y, and Z to make that work. If we do X, Y, and Z to make that work, now where are we, right? Do we have to go into more debt than we needed to go into, right? But action, right? People just love action. Second point, which you got behind, it can be the only signal to others that you're worth your salary. Ma massive. This might be what makes the world go round. People think there's a guy that runs 
company called Visualize Value that distills down complex ideas into simple visuals. And one of his most famous ones, I'd say, is an invoice. And it says, like, turning the screw $1. Um, the experience that comes with knowing which screw to turn uh, $999.99. And the total invoice is $10,000. So the point he's trying to make is that this experience can be so valuable. A lot of people say similar things in terms of if you just bill at an hourly rate, but you have 30, 40 years experience and you might solve their problem in 15 minutes. But the reason you can solve their problem in 15 minutes is because of your 30 years of really hard work. I see all those things being connected here. And I think, I just think it's a really wise point by Morgan. There's so much uh, of like a performative nature sometimes that has to sit in uh, showing people your value. Yeah. But, but, there, but there's also like, there's a skill in knowing how to do that without actually doing anything to the point that you just, <laughs> that you just brought up, right? You might've solved that thing in 15 minutes. And now you're like, okay, now I need to, I know the answer. Mm -hmm. Now I need to get them to the answer. Yeah. Right. And then I can just, I can just put forth like the deck I already made the presentation I already put together, you know, anyway. Yeah. That's exactly thing. what I'm trying to articulate is that sometimes you might get to the problem quickly and then people feel compelled to put on the show about, Oh, I've been grinding on this when they probably knew 15 minutes not, I'm not claiming this is something that happens frequently, but with the right expertise, you can solve problems very quickly because of your expertise and experience. And then you go put on a show for the client. Yep, exactly. All right. The last one, it can provide the illusion of control in a world where so much is out of your hands. I think this one is pretty straightforward. Human nature, we like agency. We like to have control over things. And if everything seems out of control, we'll do whatever the thing is, whether it makes sense or not, that we can we can control. It's the, the equivalent of... Uh, the looking looking in the place where the light is for your keys, although you know they're in a different place. Yeah, yep. it's, it's that you know, it's like that same thing. There was so much in this one, like the set of this one little paragraph. I read this and I was like, it connected. Morgan always, my boy, always, always, always connected. Yeah, that's really solid. Uh, so in to addition you. to the T-shirt that I'm getting, oh, okay, I also commissioned a billboard. Um, this is a this is a long story, but uh, bear with me. So Jason Swag, our friend at the Wall Street Journal, is I mean we we reference him all the time. He's a great writer. He writes the Intelligent Investor column. He's been around for years. One of the most notable things he did in his career was um, add commentary to the Intelligent Investor. And so if you go buy that book, it's very likely that you'll get the copy that Ben Graham wrote with commentary from Jason Swag. He had a thread this week on Twitter that just was so good and, and it needs to be shouted out. So what's happened because he added his own take on that book is people go around on Kindle or online and they Google quotes from it. And it's not crystal clear if that quote or if that was written by Jason or if it was written by Benjamin Graham. He literally went through 25 things that are frequently quoted as Benjamin Graham that are actually Jason Swag. So first, wow. shout out props 
this speaks to why we love him so much. It shows a clear understanding of Graham's work. It shows intelligence on Jason's part. And these quotes, I don't think I've ever misquoted him, but I've read these quotes and thought they were Benjamin Graham. That's how good they are. And so I want to go to maybe my favorite of that, which is the billboard I'm commissioning, Dougals. And I'm going to hang this on front of my head. On the front of my house. This is going to, there's no more paint job on my house. I haven't talked to the wife about this yet, but it's just going to be quotes about Benjamin Graham. Okay. You ready? I'm loving it. All right. There's, there's a few things here. So, and we're giving credit here. This is Jason's words. This just happens to be Jason's words about Ben Graham's brilliance. So my billboard is commissioned by Jason. A stock is not a ticker symbol or an electronic blip. It is an actual ownership interest in a business with the underlying value that does not depend on its share price the number that one ticker symbol is amc <laughs> no it that even works for amc diggles because <laughs> the end of that quote is with an underlying value that does not depend on its share price we know the underlying value of amc okay true all right all right fair enough yeah that's good stuff that's good stuff you always talk about ownership in a business right and you have to yeah. think about it as ownership in business love it the market is a pendulum that forever swings between unsustainable optimism, which makes stocks too expensive, and unjustified pessimism, which makes stocks too cheap. The intelligent investor is a realist who sells to optimists and buys from pessimists. That one gets quoted all the time as Benjamin Graham. Yeah. Yep. And you know how like mean reversion is my religion over here. That's mm -hmm. saying mean reversion rules the world. I absolutely love it. Well, it also says there is no mean. I mean, not exactly. It means that like, <sighs> it, I guess it says the market is never at the actual mean. It fluctuates to extremes, which creates a mean by definition. But the market. is Yeah, not I mean, that's how I think of it. I, I say it's always somewhere in the cycle. And a lot of times as it goes from uh, too optimistic to too pessimistic, it's in that middle ground, and that's where the mean shows up. So, yep. yep. All right. The future value of every investment is a function of its present price. The higher price you pay, the lower your return will, will be. What do you think about that one? All right. Is it okay if I take a, a little tangent from something else yeah. I wanted to bring up? Absolutely. You cool? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, there's something that I, well, there's something I wanted to bring up, but I'm about to bring it up. So, whatever. Here it comes. I was reading this uh, this interview with Michael Mobison, and there should have been like a video or something because this is a long article. But anyway, there's this quote he had that I really wanted to get your reaction to, and it relates to that point. Michael Mobison, famous investor, what he says is most invest most investors act as if their task is to figure out a stock's value, and then to compare that value to the price. Our approach reverses this mindset. We start with the only thing we know for sure, the price, and then assess what has to happen to realize an attractive return. Yes, which is why he has a book called Expectations Investing. I mean, my take, which I think you're asking for, is this is one of the things I always struggle with uh, in terms of how Mobison thinks about the challenge, because I think about it the first way. And what I think of is the Ben Graham way, like figure out what the the thing is worth, uh, figure out the final quote I'll read for you is about margin of safety. It's like figure out if it's trading for significantly less than it's truly worth and then buy the thing. 
So that's my approach. I think Michael Mobison's approach is sound, but um, you know how we've talked about investing being like built into your genes in a lot of ways. I just don't think that's how my brain naturally processes the problem. It's they're they're not at odds necessarily those two ways of thinking because you're doing the same thing but as you mentioned like the phrase margin of safety you're saying like your expectation is that mean reversion is going to happen and it's going to go to like its actual value right and but where where i contrast this with uh, the quote that you brought up before from jason is something at a high price can go to a much higher price absolutely right and that's where it's it makes sense like J- what jason's quote makes a lot of sense in in general i would say like it's the it's the safer way to do it for sure it's the i think it's the smarter way generally to do it all else being equal and the market going back to the the previous quote before that the market swings to like yep. these real extremes such that nvidia's price at the beginning of 2020 was real high and then it was like three times as high <laughs> yeah 18 months later now to jason's point if you bought nvidia when it was a quarter of what its price was in 2020 then your overall return is still higher but the market man this is this is the beauty of the market <laughs> let me read this last quote because i think it ties in here no matter how careful you are the one risk no investor can ever eliminate is the risk of being wrong only by insisting on what Graham called the margin of safety, never overpaying, no matter how exciting an investment seems to be, can you minimize your odds of error. I love what you just talked about with NVIDIA. Um, I, I know that that's core to your investment philosophy in terms of being more long trend momentum based. I know that can be a successful philosophy, but how I think about the problem is what Jason's articulating here. It, a stock like NVIDIA might go up more but I feel like the probability of it going up more when it's already a high flyer is significantly less than the probability of something that's in the garbage heap that I'm buying for less than the current book value. You know, that's just how my brand works. Again, I think people are wired that way. And so I'm not saying this is the only path uh, to success, but this is how I think about the challenge. I think that's why I got the billboard commission, man. (laughs) But do you need the billboard in front of your house? Oh, yeah. No, I I definitely need it in front of my house. Remind me of that every day when I come home. And and kind of rub it in my neighbor's face that they might be overpaying for their stock prices. I mean, (laughs) don't you think that's appropriate in life? (laughs) Oh, your form of evangelism is quite fascinating. All right. That was good stuff. Thank you. Uh, Jason, spitting wisdom, left and right. Appreciate that. I'm going to go to my next intellectuality, if that's cool with you. Yeah. Okay. Reach into the fishbowl. And this is, it's not necessarily an investing topic. I'm, it just reminded me of some investing things. So bear with me here. There is a blog post. The title is Don't Write to Think, Think to Write on Herbert Liu's blog. So tell me if it's a stretch, because this is this, he wrote this to be about writing, but I love some of the stuff in here. So the what this whole thing is about, he kind of summarizes at the beginning of it with the quote, writing is not the artifact of thinking. It's the actual thinking process. 
I mean, I think that's fairly straightforward and it's, it's also a fantastic quote, but what it got me thinking about was the practice of investing. That it's not just this intellectual exercise, right? Where you're just thinking about what uh, valuation might be thinking about what might happen. And then you like pull the trigger and execute a trade. There's like a practice, like an activity that's involved in it, which is also really important. And that also got me thinking about um, who, who was it that was it Collison that was interviewing um, Stanley Druckenmiller recently, yeah. right? Yeah. So during that interview, uh, Stanley Druckenmiller brought up, um, this was a couple months back, he brought up how sometimes like he'll execute on a trade or have his folks execute on a trade and then go and do the deep research. It kind of got me thinking about that too, that there's like, there's something about the price. And I, everyone should like not go and do that of like the first stock you think of just go and, and trade and then do research that is not what i'm talking about here yeah no, just... let's just the recommendation on the show is if you have a 35 year track record of uh, beating the market and you're a billionaire then you can do that so just uh, it, feel free just get a, past a few hurdles <laughs> yeah exa exactly exactly that's all you have to do that's all you got to do and then, <laughs> then you go with it but what it did it just got me thinking about how much like is in the the practice of investing and like not necessarily the intellectual side of investing. Both are important, but that that's what that got me thinking about. I'm going to throw out one other thing and then I'd love to get your reaction to both. This other quote he had um, was about writing a crummy first draft. If you only read books or polished articles, you might think that this is how all writing should simply be. If you'd started seeing people's first drafts or journal entries or notes, you'd realize it was completely opposite. The writing only ended up like that after a ton of revisions. This also, this got me thinking, like something we've talked about a whole bunch here is like, how did someone get to that investment? Why did, why'd they make the trade? What's their time horizon? What else do they consider and pass up? What hedges, right, do they have against that investment? There's so much that you don't end up knowing. And when I, when I read this, it just like, that kind of just clicked for me. If you only see the book and don't see all the revisions, like you only see the 13F, right? The, the record of what they own. You don't know what went into it. And it's really important combined with like, there's a practice of investing. It's important to know all the different pieces and how they all fit together. All right. Am I, it was that a stretch or do no, you see the connection? Well, there's a lot there. I get, I think I'll actually start with the end. You're, um, as I was walking, watching the, the market struggle this week, I kind of had this fun epiphany in a way that, you know, I was like, on the first of September, I had a bunch of interest hit because I've, I'm more cash heavy for a variety of reasons than I have been for uh, a while. And so it, it was like, even in my own brain, I was going, yeah, my stock picks aren't doing so great right now. But my I was fooling myself with like my true investments because I have seven different accounts with different things going on. Um, so when you put that all together, like my losses are very reasonable sometimes it just all gets lost in the shuffle and that goes to the, your last point of like you don't know what other hedges people have in place i think it's funny that even sometimes a sophisticated individual investor might forget about some of the hedges they have going on just because of the way accounts are structured and everything else uh the writing piece is he nailed it so um james o'shaughnessy uh, talks a lot about your brain being this like massive supercomputer, but sometimes in order to get that supercomputer to work for you, you actually have to put pen to paper and write those ideas down 
and work through the draft process to get something coherent that is meaningful. I think a lot of people talk about that in terms of writing a book. And then we all know the old adage about being able to teach something means you truly master a topic. To me, the first step of teaching it is basically writing your outline or your article, your blog post. So 100% right. I, I agree with that completely. This year, I've been reading a, a bunch of books that are how the world works type of books. And that's just where my, my head's at. Um, I read this one recently called The Big Picture. Have you read that book? No. It's uh, It's like how everything came about. <laughs> it's the only way I can summarize it. And I, uh, so I finished this book and I go to my wife and I was like, I think I should study quantum physics. Generally, our conversations end with some version of an eye roll. This one yeah. was no different, yeah. <laughs> right? But it, it's just like the, this book just broke down everything from like the the atom <laughs> and how, how it all kind of came about. And it's like fascinating and it ties into human psychology why why things work the way they the way they do when you interact like human behavior um alongside like physical like traits of the world fascinating i've just been i've been reading like a bunch of these types of books and so this is where my brain's at so i hope all y'all are cool with making some of these connections because that's where my head's at this year yeah so first of all um stop withholding quality book recommendations from me and second of all you absolutely should take quantum physics that's one of my favorite classes on that point a couple years back, my wife walked into a room and I was drawing things on like uh, a whiteboard type poster. Uh, I was drawing a moving train and the speed of light and trying to explain this to my five-year-old. That was a really fun conversation. That's quantum physics for you. I highly recommend <laughs> you dive in. There you go. There you go. I, I love it. Let me, there's another, if you, if you want me to let you know, here, I'm looking at my list right now. Yeah. There's another one. Uh... Oh, how the world really works. Have you read that one? No, I haven't been on the same kick as you. I haven't been deep in the weeds with this, but here's what I'm going to tell the listeners is let's take Morgan's advice from 10 minutes ago and sit around and relax, not just be busy to look busy, grab one of these Dougal's book recommendations and uh, make some positive movement. The, the rest will take care of itself. <laughs> All right. So, what's next for you? everyone i again the skipping diggle show is ahead of the game here i feel so pat on the back we we were talking about lying flat in china for months now probably nine months ago and now the quiet quitting movement is like people cannot stop writing articles about it uh we talked about that a couple of weeks back there's a survey 990 u.s adults uh were just surveyed last month this just has it's fascinating to me um, like usual, I fall somewhere in the middle. They ask two questions. The first was, employees should always go above and beyond at work. And 82% of people older than 65 agreed with that statement. And 50% of people under 29 agreed with that statement. And surprisingly, the groups between those, so 30 to 44 and 45 to 64, uh, create a perfect trend line. So basically, there's a thought that the older you are in this country, the more important it is to go above and beyond at work. And the younger you are, the less important it is. Is there anything to this, Dougals? 
I think that there is something something to it. It it uh it's not surprising to like seeing the numbers is actually um like makes it much more vivid, right? And real. But as I look at the numbers, my head goes that's actually it's not that surprising given like other trends that it, um that I've seen. And one of the ways I'd summarize it is people are in some ways fed up. I think there are probably other phrases for it too, with not seeing the connection between their value in the world and like the way capitalism works, I think in a number of reasons or a number of ways is the, is the thing I can say. And so like how that ends up manifesting is like, if, if I'm going to give that extra 10% effort, I want 10% more yeah. for it. Right. And there's a there's a in my this in my view there's like this fascinating balance that has to occur right and what i don't want to happen is i don't want people to pass up on learning opportunities um doing something that could actually be like really interesting or meeting that person or you know whatever it might be because sometimes that's what happens when you go above and beyond yeah. and i also don't want folks to be taken advantage of and to go above and beyond, you know, with nothing for them at, on the other end. But there's like, there's a, there's a balance. And I do think that that's a, it's a generational thing. Like I'm, it, I, I see the difference um, between the generations in the real world too. The, the first thing I wonder is if this is another one of those surveys that happens every 10 years and it always shows the older folks valuing the old school methodology. Like that's my first reaction when I see this sort of stuff. The second is how many people are actually quite quitting. And if the people who are so-called quite quitting are only younger, I mean, uh, this might be stereotypes, but I remember a lot of the 60 year old guys that had completely checked out and were counting their check, you know, sat there for seven more years getting paid and saying, I dare you to fire me. Like, to me, that's quite quick. That was really progressive, quite quitting. I want written this that happened 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think this is a really difficult problem to solve. I think there's two things that absolutely need to be a part of the solution. Uh, the first is making sure that people are engaged and rewarded and thanked for their contributions to the company. The second is some sort of employee ownership because I think the younger generations here are saying we don't see a reason to go above and beyond at work because we don't get rewarded for that time. So we'd rather go hang out with our friends. If they're a true owner of the company, you solve a lot of that challenge. It depends on the amount of ownership. It's not just ownership. True, I, think a lot, I think a lot of this comes from uh, perceived and real inequity and the gap of that wealth inequity I'm talking about specifically. Uh, the more that that increases, the more that it doesn't seem worth it, even if you are an owner. If someone else, like if you're, uh, if if AMC gave all of its people shares, and so you're you're making the popcorn, right? You're making that popcorn, putting that butter on it, but you have one share. Yeah, true. And the CEO yeah. has a million shares. Hey, there you go using. Uh, common sense and knowledge in this argument you're, you're completely right it has to be it has to feel meaningful i'm talking more in a small business setting than in a publicly traded company okay well you went there 
So I'm gonna, I, I couldn't read this article because it was so depressing. But when we talk wealth inequality, there's this uh, chart list going around from Bloomberg. I don't know if you saw it this week because I, I didn't send it your way. It is the median US family wealth. This is from 2019. And they break down single men and single women. Okay. And then they add one additional layer. They do it with and without children. So without children, a single man's median U.S. family wealth is about $57,000. And a median woman's annual wealth is $65,000. So the single woman is, is likely has a higher net worth than the single man if you don't have kids. If kids enter the equation, the male's median net worth is $59,000. And the uh, women's single net worth, any guesses here, Douglas? It's jarring. 42. $7,000. Right? It says, Chris, I mean, it's pretty much the same. Unless you're single and you have this burden. I mean, not a burden. Kids are a blessing. You know what I mean? But like, how drastic is that? It basically has no impact on the man's wealth. And it reduces the woman's wealth by, gosh, nearly 90%. Yeah, I watched uh, maybe like a year ago or so. I watched uh, an episode of that show Explained on Netflix that was about the the pay gap. And that the conclusion they came to was very similar. Um, and they had visuals, you know, and all the stuff that goes along with it. It was a good storytelling. That was the the uh, the pay gap in this country is not a gender pay gap. It is a gender with kids pay gap right Mm -hmm. like that was that was the the point of that which was eye-opening i think really for me and it makes well makes sense is not right because i don't i don't mean that it's like right makes sense it just like all the logic fits together and like as i see what happens out in the world i can see where this occurs and there's so many factors that compound and come together that make it happen some of them are like natural or systemic or, you know, some of them are biased. Uh, many of them are biased. It's just like all this stuff kind of comes together because a, a woman may leave the workforce. Mm-hmm. Therefore, when we average in, now you have a zero, right? When you're at work and people are saying like, oh, no, nah, uh, Marcy, Marcy doesn't, wouldn't want to travel because Marcy has kids. But yeah, Tom, yep. Tom, why don't you do it? And now you don't have the same opportunities, yep. right? And so there's there's like so many factors that go into it. It's a, I'm going to, my, you know, my girl, Whitney Houston, I brought this up before. I'm going to take one of her quotes and then misshape it for this. It's not right. And it's not OK. <laughs> I mean, I know what I'm asking Alexa to play as soon as I get done with this podcast. <laughs> going to listen go. to some Whitney. It's messed um, up stuff. Yes. No, it's. And thank you for articulating that so well. I know I've seen the stat before. I think I've even seen the explained series you're talking about. But every time I see it, I go, oh, my goodness. Like, it shouldn't be. That's just not fair. I guess life isn't fair, so people can tell me to shut up about it. But it just doesn't seem right. It somewhat uh, does connect to the last conversation we were having, too. But well, yeah. actually, a number a number of things that we brought up today, I think it connects to. It, it connects to the going above and beyond, right? Not going above and beyond. And connects to when we were talking about Morgan Housel and the definition of going above and beyond, because people can, they can do all the busy work and look like they're going above and beyond. And maybe the person that then 
goes back home or goes to pick up their kid or goes to the their kids like concert you know whatever like whatever it might be they like they might not look like they are going above and beyond but their work can be a lot better but mm-hmm. the person that's like that's in the office till 9 p.m doing a bunch of nonsense like they look like they're going above and beyond right and there's that that perception i think also ends up adding to these things whereas if you're just good at it you can do it in less time you're more efficient you're more effective you can use the company's dollars in a better way but you might look less busy yes absolutely all right, what's else, what else is in your fishbowl? I got one last thing. And I wish that I there was, there was more data out there. I'm going to see if there is. But this, this one thing did get me thinking here. So I saw this graph that looks at uh, revenue increases for just a select group of Fortune, or sorry, S&P 500 companies. Mm-hmm. And it shows the revenue increase for this year compared to the unit volume of sales increase compared to the price of goods increase in summary inflation has passed through these companies to their customers and so revenue has grown but it's mostly that they're increasing prices and not that they're selling more stuff it's not the demand has increased it is that they have just charged more stuff right and this was only the graph i saw has like about 10 companies on it and so when I saw this, I was like, I actually want to, like, I want to know what this looks like across the entire S and P five hundred or Fortune five hundred or whatever. I don't really, you know, care which one that is, but I, I would just like to see a bigger data set because I, I wonder how much is this or how much isn't, and so I, th- I found that to be interesting. Yeah, the reason you don't see this um, is because it, on a broad level, is they comb through the company reports, so there's a lot of analysis that has to be done for this. I'm really glad you brought this up, mostly because um, I'm about to rant for my next topic. And I'll start that with PepsiCo, Quaker Foods, North America, PepsiCo, (laughs) Frito-Lay Foods, North America, PepsiCo Beverages. Pepsi needs to make up their mind already. I'm so sick of there. We own all the snack products. We own all the like, I'm just done with that. Just be a Coca-Cola. The reason they did that is because they couldn't compete with a Coca-Cola. And everyone knows the best soda is Dr. Pepper. So uh, I'm fired up about this. But takes. Um, yeah, if you look at this more broadly, like Clorox, their unit volume sales is almost down 10%. Their revenue is hanging steady, grown just a little. And therefore, their pricing is up uh, basically 11%. Like it, it, it tells a nice story of how the PNGs of the world or the Coca Colas of the world are managing things. And it does, it, to me, it shows which companies have pricing power and which don't. That's interesting. I actually, my head didn't go there. That makes perfect sense. It's not where my head went. I think you're, my head initially went to, uh, how much desperation is sitting out in the markets was a question Interesting. that I asked. And then what's the sustainability of that desperation? Going back to, can people afford, what is this? And for PepsiCo, if I look at PepsiCo, Quaker Foods, North America, right? You're talking about like, what is it, 17, 18% increase in prices mm-hmm. for my oats? Yeah. Like, how sustainable is that when you look at, the average American family. No, well, it's not. But the the story the graph tells here is that their unit volume sales are actually up. So 
it's amazing to me because whatever that is, I think that's like Oreo and Ritz crackers and those sort of things rolls up into the Quaker Foods group, although they might roll up into the uh, Frito-Lay group. I'm not <laughs> exactly sure. This is my problem with PepsiCo. But uh, if your unit volume sales are actually going up and you raise prices like 15%, that says people really like your products. But how sustainable is it? Yeah. Like it might, it might be if I need, I'm just sticking with the oatmeal, right? Keep it simple. It might yeah. be that I, I, you know, I like my brown sugar oatmeal. I like my apple spice oatmeal. I like that. And I need that. And so prices are up to 18%. So this month, you know, next month, I'm going to buy that. And then in six months, am I? Like, what's the first thing to go? Maybe my, my apple spice oatmeal, right? And so I don't know how sustainable it is when you're talking about nearly 20% price increases. That doesn't mean that in this quarter or this year, I, I do or don't buy it. But next year, I uh, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think it, I think people are price conscious all the time. I think if the prices were too high, they'd stop buying nearly immediately. There's not like a six-month lag. So they're still buying. Nah, nah, bro. I mean, I think you're generally right. But I say nah because of the situation that at least Dougal's believes that consumers are in right now. I think consumers are overspending right now. And they're going to hit a cash crunch sometime in the, the nearest future. And so like, I don't think that this is sustainable stuff. Like, oh, I don't Dougal's... think you can drain the bank accounts that are getting overly drained no, for consumers right is, now. This is America. We don't, uh, we spend more than we make. We don't, what are you thinking? That people are going to have to balance their budget, their personal budget? No, no one does that. And we don't do that uh, with our government either. So no, we'll just keep spending. All right, that's true. Two quick things on my end. First is United Healthcare Group and other big companies have done this. And this drives me insane and i'm happy that there's some action being taken i'm just gonna read the first paragraph of the wall street journal article i think it will articulate it united healthcare groups finance chief allegedly put business interests first and ignored information that the company's 401k plan was filled with low performing target date funds hurting plan participants according to a class action suit filed wednesday the reason I get so fired up is I've seen this happen a bunch with large corporations. You say we control the assets of our employees' retirement, and you go out and bid those into the market. And a lot, in a lot of cases, you get funds that have fees that are not at all compatible, uh, comparable to the market. In some cases, I've seen basic like spy type index funds have a one and a half percent fee in a company's four hundred one k plan. When you, everyone on earth knows if you go out and buy that in the free market, you pay like eight basis points. Um, and the reason that companies have done that, and I don't know specifically about John Rex at United Healthcare Group, he might be a fine guy, but in a lot of cases, they do that because they get a kickback and the Morgan Stanley, the E Trade, whoever manages the fidelity, they take those ridiculous fees. And they share the wealth and then the executives make more money by screwing all their employees. That gets me really fired up and I wanted to mention here. If it's happening in your company, let's call some lawyers immediately and Skippy and Diggles will show up in the courtroom and throw stickers at their... <laughs> uh, Diggles is not into that plan. He's giving me looks over here. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't don't pull me into the courtroom. That's what <laughs> I, I was with you until I've been appearing in a courtroom. This always gets me fired up. It is not... This is... 
if you control your employee's retirement, you should think of a fiduciary responsibility to those people who you should care about because they are the employees in your company. Like this is really important uh, for me. And I don't know why it gets me fired. It's incredibly important because it often is like a, I'll call it an invisible fee. Like people, many people probably don't realize it's happening. And so you're um, like screwing over folks that don't even necessarily know it. Right. And don't have other options. Like it's a, yeah. You're, you're you you have a cornered market effectively. So I get that. You have the monopoly on these people's retirement accounts, um, unless they jump through significant hoops. And if you take advantage of that for your benefit, I want that to be rectified. It's the most PC way I can say it. Agreed. And I also just want to comment on how diplomatic you always are when you're talking about some of these folks. Like you're like, look, I don't know Joseph Stalin. He's probably a stand-up individual. But I do disagree with what I'm seeing in like that. Dude, I'm a little perturbed at a few issues from Mr. Stalin. <laughs> um, uh, okay, my second thing is mortgage rates are up. Cost of a home has nearly doubled in the last seven years. What this has done is make uh, rental units significantly more affordable when compared to someone taking out a mortgage. So there's uh, uh, this is a national association of realtors tracks this trend basically between the ratio of a mortgage payment to the ratio of a rental payment for a comparable property. Uh, that's trending up uh, significantly in the last three months. And I think it's in the 1.5 range. Um, and I've seen it based on certain areas to be as high as two, meaning it, right now could be twice as expensive to purchase a home than it could be to rent a home. So is that what is smart? A comparable. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Comparable. What do smart businesses do? They, they were building uh, massive complexes with the thought of selling those, let's call it a, like a big a, or apartment or ta- townhome complex. Sorry. And, they decided in the last two months, you know what? We're not going to sell these properties. We're just going to become a landlord because no one, <laughs> the um, demand to purchase a lot of these properties that were under construction has fallen off significantly, but there's still strong demand to rent. So I just love this. This is um, one thing I always talk about when I own uh, ownership position in a company that I know those people show up every day and work hard to make decisions that will make me money. Um, that's what's happening here. A lot of these big uh, builders are going, you know what, we're, we're going to hang on. We're going to turn into a rental agency for however long it takes, three to five years, and then we'll sell them. Or maybe the um, returns on that rental property will be really good. We'll hold on to it for longer. But that was not the original plan when they built the thing. The housing market is... I mean, we talked about it a lot right over the last couple of years, but going going back to your pendulum swinging thing that Jason brought up is that pendulum has swung real quicks, like yep. in both directions. I mean, it's like massive. If you went starting, you know, early 2020, like swung hard to cheap to buy houses, right? For about uh, relatively, right? From a, from a um, interest payment perspective, then interest payments have been going up and it's gone from, under 3% to over 5% in a short period of time. And mm-hmm. so you go from this, like, why the heck would you rent when you can buy this property to why the heck are you buying when you can rent this property in such a rent. short, yeah. such a short period of time? 
the thing I love about the housing market, like if you look at that, the specific ratio between rental and um, purchase payments is there's like a really clear uh, bottom and top to that ratio. It's, it's never going to be the point where people are paying five times the amount to purchase a home that they went to rent the home. Like there's a very clear upper bound. And so you could just follow that and you effectively know where mean reversion will take you. Now you never know the timing of that, but you can say, you know, people will use their agency to make a smart financial decision for their family. And therefore the price of a home is going to have to come down because there's too many good rental options available. Anything right. else? No, I think that's it. I think it's time to thank the nice people. Uh, send us some listener mail, boys and girls. Skippydiggles at gmail.com. And those that don't uh, identify as either. Oh, good point. Uh, Twitter, at Skippydiggles. Substack's amazing. Better than the Twitter, but um, don't let Diggles get a big head because he manages that. So let's just... Anyway, moving on. And rate and, and review the podcast so your friends can find it. And I'm planning on this weekend to put out uh, my latest quarterly uh, portfolio performance. So if y'all are into that, um, check oh, that out. Listen, and, that hot, no, we don't want that hot garbage here. It, it's Labor Day. We want a nice restful week to, to relax and rejuvenate. We don't want to see your portfolio falling off a cliff here. Doodles. I'm sure you do. And I mean, that that's effectively at the, uh, the title is just a series of emojis. Um, <laughs> and they're not, they're not the happy face they're emojis. Not smiley faces <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah. they're not the smiley face emojis all right thank you everybody appreciate you